before I read the scripture this morning, I want to introduce to you, uh, and he's going to join us in a moment here after I read the passage, uh, Stan Archie. And uh, Pastor Stan Archie uh, is going to be opening God's word for us this morning. Stan is uh, pastor of Christian Fellowship Baptist Church at about 45th and Troost uh, in the urban core here. And Stan um, started uh, Christian Fellowship about the same time that uh, Tom Nelson, our senior pastor, was starting Christ Community about 20, 25 years ago. And uh, at some point along the way, through some connections, um, our two churches got connected together. And we realized that um, both of us uh, as churches, though we were doing ministry in very different contexts, suburban versus urban, um, we had uh, a passion for the gospel and a passion for Kansas City. And in God's uh, providence, there was a relationship that has been going on for probably maybe 13, 14 years now, Stan, um, where we really have become sister churches. And it's such a great privilege uh, to have Stan and Evelyn with us this morning and to have Stan open God's word for us. Uh, We've been wanting to do this ever since we opened the Brookside campus. We're probably the campus that's most physically proximate uh, to Christian fellowship. In fact, just a a fun fact about Stan. Stan actually went to Southwest High School um, here right across the street. So this is Stan's old neighborhood in a lot of ways um, and uh, spent time here. So uh, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5 and then Stan, I'm going to invite you to come and and open God's word for us. Um, The scripture reader from this morning is Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16. And uh, that's on page 810 uh, in the Pew Bible. So if you uh, don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of those. If you are here, you're newer, you don't even own a Bible, we'd love to, for you to take one home with you. Um, so page 810 on the Pew Bibles, this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Hear God's word. Jesus said these words, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its uh, saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey man, it's good to be here. And uh, as Bill said, we've been talking about, I was able to come over and uh, hang out at this place when it was empty. I uh, was able to come over and hang out when it was on fire in the back back there. And uh, it's a blessing to be able to come and share God's word. Um, first of all, I want to thank uh, some good friends that, uh, that I happen to see that I always like to see uh, when I look out. You know, I'm if you're from the hood, then you always like to see people that you know wherever you go somewhere. So, uh, so uh, to look out and see the Hugheses, see Charles and his wife, and then some uh, great friends of ours in the back, uh, back there, Jose and Denise and family. Uh, it's a blessing. And then some familiar faces, some folks that we've seen before. It's, uh, again, good to be here sharing with you. Uh, my wife is here, uh, Evelyn. Uh, if ever you get tired of looking at my face, look at hers. It makes mine look better. Uh, you know, you always have something beautiful in the family. Uh, she is my beauty. And then my daughter is here uh, in the back, our youngest, uh, who is uh, rocking back and forth back over there. Uh, so we're just uh, blessed to be here. So let's go to God in prayer, ask for his blessings, and then uh, kind of see where he takes us today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity, first of all, to come and to share your word. We recognize, Lord, that there is a, there is a high level of unworthiness in this role. 
because I stand here in imperfection speaking from a word of perfection. And so, Father, I ask that you let not the speaker stand in the way of your word, but give us insight that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. Let him be the one who guides our discussion and uh, my responsibility of submission to you. Let it not be hindered uh, in any way. We ask, Lord, that you would also be with the listeners, that we'll grasp what you have to say to us, that we will be able to take it to heart and not actually pin it on the responsibility of somebody else, but take it on our own hearts and let it change our own lives so that we can give more to you. The result of today, we really like, Lord, for it to be uh, that you become more glorified, you can be more glorified as a result of our change of behavior. And so, Father, right now I ask that you would uh, bless me with perfect health, logical progression of thought, insight into the word, guidance, so that wisdom takes us where you would like for us to go. And we'll give you praise at the end. In Christ's name, amen. You know, they always say that you typically marry your, your parent, one of your parents. And I married my mother in the sense that my mom was one who liked to have things cleaned and orderly and straightened up all the time, and my wife is exactly the same way. I thought I was getting away from mama and <laughs> ended up in the same place. But what's really interesting, mom used to come in, and because she complained about how messed up the house was, we would too. So we would say, it's a mess in here. It looks like a pigsty, you know, those mama words. And, uh, and we'd be saying it, and she'd come in and say, you guys must think you are, and she would name some of these folks on TV, the Brady Bunch. And what she meant by that is the Brady Bunch had someone else to come in and clean up. You don't have anybody else to come in and clean up. If it's a mess, it's a mess because of you. So there are no maids. There are, there's nobody else going to come clean it up. So if you're complaining about it, it's really the result of your... Uh, apathy that's created what you are complaining about. It's interesting to do ministry in the city because in the city there is, by many churches and many ministries, an assumption that it will get better as if something's in it that's going to make it better. And when we look at the scripture in Matthew chapter number 5, there is an argument that awakens us to a different point of view. And so what I really want to do is lay out a thesis, and then I want to argue the thesis. Here's our thesis. It is this. Successful ministry in the city requires a theological perspective of the city. In other words, you've got to see it in a biblical way, and then it requires a comprehensive look at ourselves. We have to look at why it's significant that I be here, and then we also have to understand a biblical strategy for impact. In other words, if the city has a theological look, and I grasp that look, I also must say, okay, since I'm in it, what's my role in it? And then I need to be able to see God's expectation for me to execute the plan. If not, then what we do is we huddle every week for nothing. Kind of like the chiefs sometimes. If there, is no, if there is no practical application of the discussion in the huddle, then the huddle was a mute point. All right, y'all with me? Yes? All right. So here's the deal. So that we can define success, because uh, I may spell success differently from you. So I want to lay out a common 
measure of success for any biblical church, and that is Matthew 28, verse number 18 through 20, and I'll just, you don't have to turn there, but uh, I'll just read it for you, and I'll read it from the NIV, and here's what it says. It says, then Jesus came and said, came and said, uh, excuse me, Jesus came to them and said, all authority is given unto me into heaven, uh, all authority, ah, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm now the boss. And if you buy that, because he says, therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, it's interesting. Nations means all kind of people, even people in the cities. Then it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And most of us have that. We know that evangelistically impacting our community is something that we really need to be paying attention to. Here's where we fall off. It says, and, in verse number 20, teaching them, it says, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Then he says, and surely, or if that happens, then I am with you. So I've been given all authority. There's some things I'm interested in. If you're busy doing those things, then we'll end up in the same place. Surely I'm with you even until the end of the, the very end of the age. Now, here's, so here's what we're saying, that if people are not doing what God taught us to do as husbands, as uh, homeowners, as people in the community, and all those different kinds of things, if they're not doing that, then even if we are evangelizing, we're not finishing the job. We started the car and didn't go nowhere. So what I really want to do is kind of break down that thesis statement and talk about what it might look like if we grab those three principles. So here's principle number one, the theological perspective of the city. In other words, what does the city look like to God? What is God's view of cities? And I just kind of want to throw out some thoughts uh, that kind of run through the Bible, and hopefully you'll find a theme. In the beginning, God, uh, when he created uh, Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden. Now, most of us think it's a garden because it's called a garden. But in reality, if you look at it, it was the hub of place where all the people were to live because there was only two. So, uh, so all the people were living there. That means everything outside of that was outside the hub, which means the suburbs was a wilderness and the city was a garden. In fact, when he said, be fruitful and multiply, if he put them there to live there, then where would the multiplication of the people end up? They weren't going to be multiplying and send their kids out of the garden. Actually, the garden was developed, designed to be developed into a city. Amen, said the walls. <laughs> okay, so now that became a problem. The city would have been damaged, so he had to kick them out. So he kicks them out of the city into the suburbs. Now, here was the problem. They gathered together, by the sixth chapter of Genesis, they gathered together as a city again, which was a problem because even though they gathered together as a city, they didn't live biblically or see, see God's way. A city that goes too far, God is so concerned about cities that go too far that whenever you have a gathering of people to go too far, God always acts. And so what happened is he came out and he tried to get them to see what he wanted them to see, at least 120 years of building a boat. Why don't you minister to them and see if you can get them to go your way? Noah and his family were the only ones, so therefore everybody else, he wiped the city away, and all of a sudden now you had a couple of other folks whose job is to come out and build and rebuild the city. So therefore they came out and rebuilt the city. By the time they got through rebuilding the city, the folks in the city had organized themselves 
developed a government and they wanted to build a tower so that they then could put a name in the lights for their city. They wanted to build a Las Vegas that reached all the way up into the heavens. And so since the city had gone away, God came in again and then wiped out the city by causing the people not to be able to commune. So therefore, they all went separate ways. Then he comes in and he says, okay, let me get Abraham and let me build my own little city. So he grabs Abraham and Abraham, you're going to have some kids. It's going to take a while, but you're going to have some kids and your kids are going to begin to build a city. So Abraham's kids begin to build a city. They strayed off a little bit. The other cities that were there were affected by the fact that none of Abraham's people was there. And the one of Abraham's nephew that did go to the other city, instead of affecting the city, the city affected him. And so, therefore, we end up with Sodom, and Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities, had gotten too far off. And so, uh, God said, if we have a good evangelist, I mean, Abraham said, if we have a good evangelistic team of at least, let's say, 10 people, then could you save the city? He said, yeah, I'll do it for 10. If you have 10 that can conform the city, then we'll conform the city. You didn't have 10 righteous people to conform the city, so therefore, he wiped out the city again. And you notice the, the system that's going on here. Uh, uh, with Israel, Israel were growing to become an effective city. They had some economic problems. I don't know. Stimulus plan didn't work. So God, so they went up to Egypt to try to get another stimulus plan, but the stimulus plan that they adopted to caused them to migrate up into Egypt. So now you have God's people in a city, uh, in, a, uh, 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 in a place that did not allow them to build, but you had Egypt was kind of designed as a huge city. Uh, now the problem was uh, Egypt was not af uh, affected by the fact that they had believers there. So God says, then I'm going to get my people out and then I'm going to send them to another city that is growing and uh, it's going to be effective in the earth. So he pulled them out. Egypt fell. He sends them over to Canaan. They didn't want to go to Canaan because Canaan was a growing city. They didn't want to go to Canaan and affect the city. So what God says is, then I'm going to kill y'all. Abraham says, hold up, God. Then we'll look bad to the other city. And so, uh, so God says, okay, well, then I'll kill you over time. And so over 40 years, they wandered as a little city moving around in the wilderness so the other people could see what God's cities look like. Okay, so now after they got through with that, then we have uh, them moving on from there. But if you reach all the way back and you grab Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah, when they were in uh, suffering and they were in other cities and they were saying, God, get us out like you got us out of Egypt. He says, no, that ain't why I got you out of Egypt. Here's what I want you to do while you're there. Jeremiah 29, I believe verse number seven, he says, what I want you to do is plant your gardens, build houses and impact the city. And the way I told you to live, infect them so that they can become living that, so they start living that way. Uh, I can go all the way to the New Testament. This could take all day. I can go all the way to the New Testament. In the New Testament, most of us think that when God went through, Jesus went through Samaria, he went through Samaria because there was a woman at the well. He didn't go through Samaria because there was a woman at the well. He went through Samaria because the woman at the well had the ability to impact the city. So therefore, when he went, he had to go through there. Now, if he was just wanting to impact the woman, then he would have had a meeting with her and then left. But he didn't do that. What he did was he not only ministered to her and sent her back to the city, but she was the ideal person that could get the attention of the guys who was at the gate in the city. And so when she got the attention of the guys who was at the gate in the city, the leaders of the city came up and met with him. And then after he influenced them, then they went back. And not only did they go back, but they said, could you come to the city so the rest of us can get what you got? And he went to the city. And by the time he got through, they said, we don't believe you because of what she said. We believe you because we met you. So he changed the city. 
I mean, you see where the, the focus is going? If you look at Jesus' ministry, Jesus' ministry was in city. He went from city to city doing miracles. Now, he didn't do that many miracles when he wasn't doing that. Now, he did some baptism. He did the ministry of John uh, when we see him doing that. But most of his work, his miracles, his, his actual foot-on-the-ground activity was done in cities. If you look at Paul, you know, Paul's ministry. Uh, Paul's ministry, when he left, he went to cities. Matter of fact, the cities he, he wanted to go to, would and he would have skipped other cities, God worked with him through acts, through a hurricane, through imprisonment, through all this kind of other stuff, so that he would impact cities that he didn't want to go to. In fact, a person who would prefer to live in the suburbs and didn't want to go to the city, uh, when God sent him to the city, uh, was Jonah, and he thought he could get on a boat and take a cruise ship and leave the city. Uh, but he ended up taking a well and going back to the city and ministering to the city because God's heart was for the city. Now, those were wicked people. It wasn't the people. It was the city. Okay, y'all with me? In fact, at the end of all of this that we do, God says, when this is all over with, guess where we're going to end up with? The holy city. At the end of Revelations, we end up in a city. So God has some interest in the city that I think we need to pay close attention to. So a theological perspective of the city causes us to recognize a number of things. It's interesting. When Jesus came and did his ministry in Luke 19, he says, when he saw the city, he wept. He wept two times. He wept for Lazarus, and then he wept for the city. Matter of fact, what he says is he went there, he wept for the city. It also says in the scripture that Jesus went after he looked at all the cities he ministered to, and he spoke with frustration and says, woe unto y'all. Whenever Jesus says, woe unto you, that's a bad thing. So he says, woe unto all of those cities that didn't do all the things that I wanted them to do. Now, let's take a brief look at our city, Kansas City. It's interesting that Kansas City has undergone some very interesting things. Most of the time when we describe Kansas City, we describe it from the economic movement, the movement from the river, uh, where we had cargo coming in the river, everybody lived in the river, then we had the movement to uh, the trains, and then everybody lived in the rail tracks, and then after that, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution, things began to change. So we tend to look at it that way, but really, if you really want to look at the conditioning of the city, what you really have to look at is the flight patterns. Because here's the deal. When white flight took place and the whites decided that they didn't want to live with the blacks, I know it wasn't y'all, they did not want to, live, want to live with the blacks, so they migrated out of the city. The city did not fail. In other words, when the whites left, it was enough resources, it was enough talent, it was enough skills, it was enough all of those things still in the city to keep the city alive. And so you had Kansas City School District, one of the best schools around. And it was segregated and had less economic support than all of the other cities, all the other schools. So that wasn't the problem. Then you had brown flight. You had black people who were doing like white people and moving where white people were moving. So while white people were trying to get away, you know how you have a, a brother and then you have a little brother who always followed another brother? Well, see, that's kind of what was happening. White people moved here, then the black, blacks moved there, then white people moved here, then the blacks moved there. And we keep looking for a new suburbs. Eventually, we're going to run out. Eventually, everything's going to be the city. And so, uh, and this, not, this didn't only happen in America. This happened across the world. If you look at the migration of people, when migration of people move. And when people move, even though you had... You had tougher economic challenges. You did not have a soaring crime rate and a failing school district. Now, you know what flight caused the problem? Church flight. When churches started moving, 
crime started raising. When churches started moving, the stability that was there started dissipating. When churches started moving. So whenever we had the spiritual movement, then that's when the problems began. Because you, be, you can be moral and poor. Nobody wants to, but you can't. In other words, just because I don't have no money, that don't mean I'm going to take your stuff or hit you in the head because you got a better car than me or break in your house and steal your VCR. I mean, it's not, not, you, know, it, you know, it doesn't happen that way. Rape doesn't happen. All those things don't happen because people don't have no money. Those things happen because people don't have no morality. Now, the question is, who's supposed to bring morality? What politician is supposed to have a moral, you know, uh, what do you call it, campaign? Supposed to, uh, I'm going to bring morality back to the city. There's only one king that claimed that, and that was Jesus Christ. Now, why is God so interested in the city? Let's take a look at some of the things that the impact the cities have. First of all, cities create communities by defining how we live together. In other words, if you want to know how we live together across this country, then cities usually paint a clear picture of what, how we live together. Cities normally determine what houses look like, what real estate looks like, the connections that people have, whether it's a brownstone or a loft that we live in. Cities usually determine all of that. So cities throughout the country begin to determine that. Here's another thing. Cities create norms by defining acceptable and unacceptable values. In other words, cities, there are six major cities in the country that determine what we do and what we don't do, what our values are. Six major cities. And so most of them, in the, mid, in the suburbs, they're, they're, I, no, not that I know. Now, I could be missing some part of my research, but I don't know of any situation where the suburbs created a trend that the cities follow. I mean, it just don't happen that way. When kids walk around with their pants down, that came from a city. <laughs> the color of people's hair today, Amen. It came from a city. Wearing your underwear outside of your clothes, Madonna, came from a city. I mean, those come from the cities. When the cities endorse it, that's when we decide to do it. If the cities are conservative, then the country is conservative. If the city is liberal, cities are liberal, so you got about six cities that, that govern the flow of what we do in our country. And, and I don't care how many saved people, and I'm not saying we don't minister in the suburbs, I'm saying I don't care how many people get saved in the suburbs, you don't transform a country or a state or even cities by work in the suburbs. Right? Now I'm busting some bubbles. I can tell better looking on your face. <laughs> the other thing is cities and cities, they define culture by shaping the morality and the governance models by determining what's right or wrong and by determining what's good or bad. Cultures determine that. And we can dislike it all we want, whatever the case of the matter is, but when the cultures determine what's good or bad, it was the cities. And the folks in the cities that decided that the kids that we don't want, we'll just kill them so we won't destroy our progress as individuals. We'll just, and, and, and because it started in the cities, it became a countrywide acceptance of norm and a continual fight. Cities define marriage. Cities define uh, worship. Cities define everything. And so if we ignore the cities, which the church did when it began to run from it, then we allow 
right and wrong to be decided, good and bad to be decided, and governance to be decided, those models to be decided by other people. Here's another one. Uh, they shape individuals by influencing character. Cities determine which movies are going to play on TV. They, cities determine that you could be in a house where, and instead of everybody listening to the same music, then let's get everybody listening to their own music. So you have five people in the house with headphones on walking around. Cities decided that communing together was just too close. So let's separate, but yet be in the same house. So you have people in the car. You have kids in the car. You're in the front seat. They're in the back seat, and they're listening to something on their headset while you're driving. I've even seen kids come to church with their parents with headsets in. I'm like, do you need a language transition? I mean, what, what, what music must you listen to all the time? I mean, he's like, I can't, no, 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 I can't do without it. You can't do without it long enough to sit in church because whether you know it or not, in church you're supposed to be listening to something. We already have our audio visual stuff set up. I mean, you get the picture that the perspective, but those things started in the city and now it's everywhere. Rap started in the city. Poetry started in the city. All those things started in the city. Also, notice what it does. Point number five, it shapes generations by influencing uh, the historical perspective. In other words, they tell us what things need to be like. So, so what the Bible says is that we need to be salt and light. Now, let me give you a presupposition of the biblical view of the city. So, all those things are kind of, I think, theological shadows of what the city looks like or God's perspective on the city. Now, here's another thing. Because God says we ought to be salt and light, and we'll read that in just a moment, there's a, the first thing I want you to read, think about this. If he says we ought to be salt and light, then that assumes that there is decay and there's an evolution of decay. In other words, there's nothing in it that can fix it on its own. And also, there is darkness. Those two things can be assumed as we really think about this next point, which is, let's take a comprehensive look at ourselves. Who are we, if that's the world, if that's the city, who are we? Because maybe we need to run from it. Maybe we need to get, if it's that bad, maybe we need to get out of here. It was a police was like, man, I'm moving, I'm moving because crime is bad. But you're a police. If you leave, what's going to happen to the rest of us? But here's the thing, a perspective, a perspective, uh, uh, if we look at this, if a comprehensive look at ourselves, it tells us a number of things. Now, here's what's interesting. God says this. This is uh, uh, John 17. This is Jesus talking to God about us. And here's what he says. First of all, uh, John chapter 17, I'm not going to read it verbatim, but I'll just throw out kind of what's said. He says, first of all, uh, the Lord says this. He says, he says uh, um, I pray that God would, uh, I pray not that God would take you out of the world. I don't want you out of the world. And then in the next very sentence, he says, but they are not of the world. And then later on in the same verse, he says, uh, he says, so I send them into the world. And then the same writer, John, comes back and says a little later, whatever you do, don't love the world. So let me tell you how schizophrenic that sounds. He says, don't take them out of the world, but they're not of it. Then he says, I sent them to it, but they better not love it. Sound like a teenage relationship, doesn't it? 
I mean, just, you know, in other words, God, what does you want us to do? What he wants us to do. So here's you saying, be in it. I want you to mingle in it, but remain distinct from it. I want you to shine a light on it, but not be affected by their darkness. So it's interesting what he tells us to do when we get there. Now, and let's talk about going into this discussion. Here's what he says. First of all, uh, if you look at, uh, you don't have to turn here, but the verse is right before that. I think you always got to put, the, put what God says in context. So the verse is right before that. Give us a context. It says, um, it says uh, first of all, uh, uh, in verse 9, he says, since you are blessed, because all he does in the first part of the verse is says, blessed is this person, blessed is this person, blessed is this person, blessed is this person. And guess who those people are? Those are us. And so here's what he says. He says, uh, he connects us with the great blessings. In verse number, uh, first of all, he, in verse number 3, uh, he says this. He blesses us. He says, uh, I'm going to put you in the kingdom and you're going to be blessed because you are given to the kingdom of heaven. You get to be involved in the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are they who are comforted. Uh, and so, the, 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 you know, us who are living according to God's will, we get a comfort. That's a blessing. He says, blessed are those who inherit the earth. In other words, those who get to be in the earth receive another blessing from God. All of this is because we're in the kingdom. Blessed are those who are filled with, with righteousness. And so, verse 6 tells us, you know, we're filled with righteousness. Blessed are those who have mercy. So we have mercy. In addition to that, he says, blessed are you who see God, who have a perspective of God, verse number eight. Then he says, blessed are they who are kinsmen to God, who get to be called the sons of God. And then he says, because you will get your reward, verse number 12. Now, here's what he says. Now, in between there, he says, as he goes into verse number 13, he says, but here's the deal. With all those blessings, all those blessings, it's going to make you a person that doesn't fit with those who don't have it. So he says, so they're going to persecute you and dislike you and all that kind of stuff. And you're going to want to move to the suburbs. <laughs> In other words, I'm going to give you all this stuff. And as you get these blessings, the goal is not for you to get the blessing and leave. He said, they're going to persecute you. They're going to lie on you. They're going to come after you. They're going to do all that kind of stuff. But what I, do, what I want you to do is to recognize that you will stay there. He says, you will get your reward later. In other words, don't expect your reward there. Then I'm going to say, you're the blessed person. Thank you for being here. Some of us have just waited. You ever go out and do a good thing, and then you wait for somebody to at least appreciate it? I have learned, especially over the last several years, that most of the people who you do most of the work for will not only abandon you, but they will also contribute to trying to persecute you. And those are the folks you serve the most. Ask Jesus, who did he serve first? The Jews. Who sent him to the cross? The Jews. So what he's saying is, don't do this because you expect kudos. Because you've already missed it. He said, here's what you got to understand. Verse number 13, Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt it loses, loses the saltiness, then how can it be made salty again? In other words, if you're not salty anymore, there's nothing in the earth to make you salty because you're the only one like you. Nobody else gets what's in verse number 1 through 12 except for you. So since you get that, you have become salt in this city. And the issue is, if as salt in the city... You lose your saltiness. You disconnect from those things that God wants to give you. Then you are no good in the city. 
But if you leave the city, then the city has nothing good there. So he says, so how can it be salted again? It's, it's good for nothing but to be thrown away. Now, I don't want to dig deep into that or else we'll be here all day. Uh, so, uh, so now let me go to the next piece. It says, here's the other thing you are. You are the, uh, you are, excuse me, he says, you are the light of the world. He says, the city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Now, I want you to understand that when he, when he talks about the pronoun, he talks about it in a fanatic uh, in, a, uh, in a form that means you're the only one. So what he says is, you're the only salt. You're the only light. So expecting for them to see without you is ludicrous. That's like turning off the light and saying, now y'all need to do better. They can't see what better even looks like. I was talking to a person the other day, and the discussion was, he says, well, those people know that's wrong. No, they don't. When I was doing wrong, I didn't know what was wrong, but they grew up in church. Everybody knows that selling drugs is wrong. No, they don't. Because when I sold drugs, I didn't think it was doing anything wrong. How can that be? Because I didn't have no light. You with me? Now, he talks about salt and light because I think he wants us to understand that the decay, now salt was used to stop, stop something from decaying in those days. And salt was interesting because the way you use salt is it was a very hands-on strategy. In other words, what you had to do is like when they, when they killed meat. Matter of fact, in Leviticus, it says don't, when you, the, the meat that was going into the temple, it says the meat that was sacrificed that the priest ate off of, it says when you get through, salt it down. Salt it. Matter of fact, it was a lot of salt it down really, really good because the salt need to prevent the decay. Here's the problem. You, you had to have enough salt on it to keep any of it from decaying because if one part started to decay, it would spread. In other words, what you're doing is disrupting the cultural flow. That's what salt does. And you also got to, Put light on things, things that seem to make sense. Now, this might not be a big deal here, but it's a big deal. We, we just are working with Rachel House, which is a, an abortion, uh, anti-abortion uh, work that's being done in the city. It's the first one we've had in the city in quite a while. And, uh, you know, working with them, I mean, it's a big deal. But when you sit down and you talk to people, you are shedding light on the fact that they are murdering. You're shedding light on it. In other words, oh, I didn't think anything, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I just wasn't ready. Then you have to shed light on fornication. Then you have to shed light on me. So you're constantly shedding light. Now, if you go to them as if you're not shedding light, you won't work well in the city. If you walk in there, now y'all know. Y'all know better than that. No, that no. You don't do that when you're shedding light. When you're shedding light, the assumption is they're in the darkness. Now, if Jesus assumes that in this passage, then shouldn't we assume that too? So he says salt and light. So he talks about a hands-on ministry. He talks about a, a, in, a ministry of insight. And here's the thing. Both light and salt spoke emphatically, meaning you're the only one who could do it, are critical impacts on changing whatever it touches. Darkness can't just be darkness while light is around. You can't turn the light on and say, keep it dark. Can't happen that way. One of them got to go. And what's happening is the church says it's getting so dark here, we're leaving. So it gets darker. 
And what God is saying is, if it's dark here, you need to be there. What good is light in light? Take your flashlight outside and see what the value is. Then you talk about salt. So when you talk about those, so let's talk about, we've talked about, uh, let's talk about kind of our last thing. What's a biblical strategy for impact? What can we do to have the kind of impact that the Bible is demanding in this place? And so we'll kind of take those ideas and kind of try to put them in a practical way. First of all, salt. Salt's influence is very silent. It must be rubbed in with the idea of preserving. It is a, it's not a bright lights and action pack kind of thing. It's a very high touch, relationship-centered, and it has to be done collectively. One person, you have a, on, your, on your food where you had some meat, where you really needed to uh, season the meat, and you took one grain of salt, put it on there, and then tasted it to see if it made a difference? No, if you put one grain of salt on there, you already know. Ain't no change. Change has to be systemic enough to where everybody is together practically making the kind of investment that will create the change. So if three people go over to Satrapay's, yeah, I mean, you have three kids that'll learn how to read better. But you won't change the flavor. Y'all with me? Okay. So you got to rub it. It's got to be high touch. It's got to be relationship driven. And here's the deal. If you want to really see the impact of salt, then you must partner with other ministries that, that are also salt. Because what you're doing is you're changing the culture in this environment so that people see that salt make it taste good. Now, here's the deal. Some people say, well, we didn't need to do all that in the suburbs. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't. I remember one time, uh, you know, you season the meat. You season the meat, and I like to barbecue and cook stuff and everything else. Uh, I'm not a cook, but I can barbecue. If it's open fire and we can see the flame, I can make it work. So... Uh, now, we went, we got some deer, uh, some venison, so, you know, some deer meat, but it was hunted deer, and it was wild, and then you had over here, you know, stuff that you buy in the store. Now, I was used to seasoning the stuff that you buy in the store, so I tried to season the deer meat the same way. If any of you have ever eaten anything wild, you learn that the seasoning process is very, very different even though you use the same seasoning. (laughs) In other words, the amount of salt I had to put on this to make it taste good, because it was wild, was very different from the amount of salt I had put on there. Now, both of them were meat, and both of them were edible. It's just that this had been wild so long that the seasoning process had to be very, very different. So you can't, so while we have to season in the same way, we have to be the same beatitude, the result of beatitudes that God demands as anybody who's in the suburbs, then my meat might be a little bit more wild. Y'all with me? So my seasoning process has to be very, very different. All right? So, you know, I might have to go to a neighborhood meeting. I might have to do uh, a meetup at the school and do some things. You might have to, there's a lot of other things that you might have to do that might not fit if you're not in the, in the hood, as we call it. The other thing is light. Light shines a light on darkness. What light does is it allows people to collectively see things in a very, very different way. And so while I am working individually in the lives of other people, then I work collectively to get the whole group to begin to see something in a very different way. If you do effective in the, if you're effective in this way, you'll be effective in this way. Here's the problem. He says, you are the salt. He didn't say, or you are the light. Notice, 
You've got to be salt and light. If you're not doing this overarching perspective, then your discipleship efforts won't work. If you're not doing that rubbing hands, high relationship, high touch stuff, then your light won't ever shine. So the church wants to pick one, and we can't. All right? So now, let's talk about a strategy for biblical impact in a more practical way. First of all, there must be feet on the ground, hands-on, life-on-life impact. In other words, if you don't know their name and where they live and what they've gone through, and if you don't know how to pray specifically for the pains in their hearts and the opportunity and doors that need to be open for them, then you ain't hands-on, life-on-life yet. Amen. Most of us like to do church from church. Can you imagine trying to play a football game from the huddle? Just throw it to me. Just throw it to me. I mean, everybody right there in the huddle. You'll never win a game that way. You got to break the huddle and get out there and mingle with the defense in order to be able to win. So it's got to be high touch. Here's the next thing. We must uh, reverse the decaying momentum of the city. In other words, our uh, you know, some of the things that we notice are issues. If you look at statistics, it's interesting. If you look at statistics of city, uh, you know, you'll see uh, all the crime that began to take place, all the stuff that began to take place. Somewhere in there is buried some statistics of the dissipating churches or either the churches that remain. So they say these are all the social organizations that are listed churches. Because what they want you to see is there's a whole lot of churches here, but they don't matter. I mean, that's kind of the hidden discussion amongst statisticians on a regular basis. That we got to have more social organizations that are secular because these religious organizations that are supposed to have the saltiness, the flavor, they they ain't doing nothing. They they don't matter. So that's kind of their argument. And so if we're not reversing the momentum of the decay, changing the culture, then we're just there. You know, it's interesting. You know, if you have a car... And I learned this by experience. My car, the alignment was off. And so my tires kept going bad. And I kept fixing it. So I thought. I kept getting new tires. And so the guy says, you ain't fixing the problem. I said, well, I bought three new tires over the last year and a half. He said, yeah, because the tires are not the problem. The problem is your alignment is so bad that anything you put on is going to be messed up. See, and what we try to do is put a Band-Aid over the deficient. And you can't do that. You can't just go build a house and think that morality is going to change. They have a house now, so now they have a place to put the stuff they steal. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, you haven't fixed the problem yet. Here's another thing. Let me go because my time is up. Here's another thing. Uh, we must shine a biblical light on moral blindness. The moral blindness that's evident in the hearts of the people in the city. The things that the people in the city believe are right. If you sit down with them, while there is a defensive posture at first, if you really sit down with them, you will find out that culturally we are beneficial if we believe things that seem to match biblical soundness. But in the city or around the world, that's not the norm. 
So when you walk in there, it's kind of like my doctor said, well, you know, you know if you do this. He's got, no, I didn't know that, or else I wouldn't be here. I'm here because I didn't know that. So don't treat me like I should have known. <laughs> There's another thing. Um, we must create a Christian subculture with a practical value of biblical living. The practical value of biblical living. Not a scriptural value only, but a practical value. Biblical living must be, it must be practical enough to where they can do it. And then they need, they need to be able to give God the credit as the result. So I mean, it has to be practical enough. So when we think about what we need to do in the Arabic court, we need to think in a very, very different way. Now let me throw out some things in closing that we have struggled to do uh, at Christian Fellowship. We, uh, we have, uh, we're working right now on a firehouse cafe. Firehouse cafe is where Christian young folks will be able to come together and have discussions to share talents, to do all those kind of things. So they see a different look of art. They see a different sound of rap. They see a different, all those kind of things that are bathed in scripture so that they can see that the things I do in my life are offered in a biblical format. In other words, if I just say, come to my church, then I'm only talking to the people who are on the team because those are the folks who do the huddle. Uh, the other thing is, right now, we are increasing our counseling services because we re- begin to recognize that not only those who have come back from overseas uh, uh, from uh, serving in service times, but you also have the impact of trauma over the years in the urban core has, uh, and we're learning more and more and more, has affected people And I would say 85% of folks have some degree of post-traumatic responses in how they make their decisions in life. So we see this this deterioration in families simply because how to love has not been demonstrated because I had to protect myself from hurt most of my life. And so we've we've increased our focus on trying to figure out how we work through that. Uh, We have Dave's Place out uh, south, and Dave's Place really is a, where we came in when the community organization failed, and it was 11 communities connected together as an organization in a non-biblical way. I was going to say, who messing with the mic? It was me. Uh, the, uh, uh, and to create that particular environment. And so what we've tried to do is create a situation where we connect with those neighborhoods. Uh, just a week, ag- a month ago, we started a negotiation with the city because the city says, we have our own little sites out there, but your little biblical impact center has more impact than us. So can we move in with y'all? And so uh, right now, I think as of last week, we signed a contract with the city to move in under our umbrella so that they can see our biblical alternative for reaching the neighborhoods they're responsible for. Um, and then we have uh, Hero's House. Hero's House is a uh, right now we have homeless veterans in the community that migrate to the city because that's where they can get handouts and some other kinds of things. Uh, but what we really want to do is give them a biblical foundation and then address their homelessness in a really practical way so that they can get past the demons that, are, uh, that they brought back from them from serving in the service and then have healthy ways of establishing coping skills and move forward and things of that nature. Those are very, very practical things that are, that's changing the culture in the city in a way that's high touch but yet shines light. And that's kind of the focus of where we want to be. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray. God, we just thank you that you're a wonderful God. You're an amazing God. Our desire, Father, is, is to be able to serve you in a capacity and in a way that demonstrates the genuineness of our hearts but yet the intellectual insight and the biblical motivation that comes from 
the saving blessings that you have given us in not only salvation, but the Beatitudes, recognizing that we in the city have an advantage in that our connection with you makes us different people. And so because we're different, we want to be salty and want to be bright when it comes to impacting others. And we want the result of that to be that they will glorify you in heaven. In Christ's name, amen.